You're listening to the Togetherings, hosted by the Alaska Humanities Forum. Hello and welcome to the Togetherings, hosted by the Alaska Humanities Forum. My name is Amanda and I'm here with Simonetta. Hi, Simonetta. Hi. This is the first conversation of a series in partnership with the Alaska Center about representation in Alaska, questions on leadership, equity, and inclusion. And today we're going to explore representation in the conservation movement. Just sharing a few words about our partner for this series, the Alaska Center. Uh, the Alaska Center is a nonprofit organization and their mission is to engage, empower, and elect Alaskans to stand up for clean air and water, healthy communities, and strong democracy. And before we start, we want to acknowledge that we are recording these conversations in Anchorage, Alaska on the Nina land. And today, to talk about representation in the conversation movement, we have two guests connected with us, Alisa Kentin and Hayes Palmer. Thank you for being with us. Hi. Hello, thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Pleasure to um, be in this conversation with you. Um, yeah, how about uh, we start by uh, sharing something uh, about yourself. Alyssa, would you like to start off and tell us one or two things about yourself that you'd like the listeners to know? Sure. Um, I guess a basic introduction is that I um, am a community organizer here in Fairbanks, Alaska, and I'm on Chena Dene lands. And uh, my whole entire family is from Barbados in the West Indies, and my family uh, was brought to this country and got stationed in Alaska in early 2000s. And so it's been a good, you know, 20 years of uh, learning um, about this place and learning about sort of the lay of the land and in terms of politics and uh, nonprofit work. Um, and, you know, this really deep passion and duty I, I that I feel that I have in order to bring the power and bring the conversations back to our communities so we can really um, see ourselves represented in our governments and really have a seat at the table. Thanks, Alyssa. Ace, what about you? Okay, the question was two things about ourselves that we would like the listeners to know. My family's also from Barbados. My mom is from Barbados um, and my dad is from St. Lucia. So the work that I'm committed to is very indigenous and close to my heart. Um, and it's a, like a commitment to cultural maintenance and um, an understanding and a true like love and like want to cultivate of the earth and like care of your surroundings. Um, and I think that it's a cultural like just a um, preservation of cultural traditions um, and indigenous like indigenous commitments um, to upkeeping certain resources and protecting certain areas of land and certain practices that help people to become more sustainable. Um, a big part of the commitment that I have to sustainability and conservation in the climate is due to my father um, and the way that he has prepared himself in the military and the things that he has studied, but also due to my cultures. And I am also on, Tanana Dene lands, if I said that correctly, correct me if I'm wrong. Okay, thank you. I'm curious to hear more, um, Ace, since you brought up, you know, care, commitment to care and to conservation. What, what brought you into working in conservation? And, and I'll come to you with the same question, Alyssa, but how, what's your connection here? How did you end up working in this now? Um, I've just kind of moved up in terms of different different forms of like nonprofit work, I would say. Like I've worked in um, like food pantries. I've done a lot of like community like events, just like communal support events. And it's something that's really ingrained in my culture. Like I've learned it really seriously from my parents. They kind of raised us that way to be like very giving. And so like I've always been kind of interested in like, okay, that and integrating that with my like indigenous culture and background and applying it to welfare and understanding like the resources that have been taken have kind of made it harder for people to live and thrive. And um, it's not really, 
ethical in a lot of places, especially when you need certain resources and there's like only a certain amount of people that control them um, and they limit certain things. So I would say that just my commitment to plants, especially is why I'm so interested in conservation and wildlife. Like I really do care about animals. I've kind of bounced around from like what I want to study in, you know, this line of work. Like I've I've bounced around from like psychology, like I'm doing psychology in terms of school right now and um, integrating that with sustainability and studying like what are the psychological impacts of, you know, the, tr the transitions that the climate is having and how that's affecting um, indigenous people and people across, you know, the rest of the world. What comes to mind for you, Alyssa? What's your connection to work in conservation? Yeah, I think it's the understanding that all of the work that we do is connected back um, to where we live and where we're at. Um, you know, for me, I've been an organizer for a really long time since I was a teenager. And throughout the majority of it, I was working mainly uh, with candidates. And, you know, somewhere along the journey, I recognized that that really wasn't where my heart lied. Um, and that, you know, the research that is out there, you know, the information and the classics that they teach you, especially in a political science um, degree and sort of realm is very dated, it's very white, it's very American centric. And it didn't really, it didn't really speak to what was happening in Alaska, it didn't speak to what was happening in the interior, it didn't speak to what was happening with young people. Um, and I just recognized that that wasn't my place. Um, and so I really started looking into other avenues of communal advocacy and research and saw that there was a huge lack of um, leadership um, with people of color um, in conservation, in green spaces, whether it be retail, whether it be, you know, public lands and work, whether it be community organizing, there just weren't a lot of people of color in those conversations or those organizations. And, you know, when your health, is, you know, and your general well-being and your job and your livelihood is connected back to the lands, to the air, to the water, and we're not even being represented, I was like, this is a huge problem. And so I was thinking, what can I do? And what am I doing to connect my community back into those conversations um, and to have us not just represented, um, but being a part of that, you know, being a part of that and um, and leading in that. Um, so that's kind of what brought me to um, this work <laughs> and organization I work for now is um, wanting to reclaim that space uh, for us and um, for our future us, you know. It's a broad question, but do you feel that the, the movement is going in that direction, that it is moving away from being a white dominated field or is that not fair to say? I think in some ways it has, kind of. I mean, in Alaska, I am not aware of any organizations that are BIPOC led that are specifically in conservation still very much, you know, white leadership, very white centric conversations. But, you know, I do see a lot more people of color, um, not, you know, not just in those in those spaces, but, you know, now working in the field now, you know, organizers, administrators, field managers, um, which is great. And I think there's a lot more conversations with BIPOC people, you know, black and brown people, um, and having those intentional spaces, but in terms of leadership, in terms of policy and decision-making, no. <laughs> it's still very, very catered and very centric around, you know, white perspectives of the climate crisis, of poverty, of environmental injustice and racism. And so I think that it's kind of like, we're like grabbing it by the scalp and trying to drag it and it's not wanting to budge. At some point it's gonna budge, but I wouldn't say that it's really changed yet. You know, we we put in parentheses yet because we're doing all this work so that when we budge the next time, it'll actually come. The head will come with us, but not yet. If if you're comfortable, no pressure. Um, I'm wondering if there, when you say that things are catered still, if an example comes to mind of a topic or a conversation that you could share with us. I'll probably have to give more thought, but I think 
Yeah, I, I guess in terms of, you know, catering, what I mean is that the level of conversation and really what's identified, as, you know, as the root causes of the crises and what those solutions need to be are very much catered to a white perspective of, oh, we just need more federal funding. And if we give money to, you know, all of the, <laughs> to all of the schools, everything will be solved and wonderful. And we're like, no, that, <laughs> you know, like, I think, for example, you know, we have these these conversations around air quality. You know, Fairbanks has, um, I think, in 2019 numbers, we don't have 2020, so it's probably going to be worse. 2019, we're the second, you know, we have the second most toxic air in the entire nation, as in we are beating out um, major cities and major states. Um, that are much bigger, much denser population than, you know, interior Alaska, we have the worst. And we have so many communities being affected, um, you know, military families that, you know, they come up and all of a sudden their kids are developing asthma and allergies out of the wazoo and, you know, elders are getting cancer and, you know, um, other elected leaders that we know of, they have cancer. And every single time we have to talk about air quality, people get you know, upset because, you know, they're wood stoves and there was a solution that was thrown out that, oh, well, you know, if we, if we just give every, if, if we just give, you know, borough residents a whole bunch of money to switch out their, um, their wood stoves, then everything will be solved. I'm like, no, <laughs> that's, you know, and of course, you know, you're in a room with nothing but white people, like, you know, there's like maybe three people of color in the entire room, that's including me. And I'm thinking, okay, but that doesn't necessarily solve the healthcare aspect of it. That doesn't necessarily, you know, take care of a lot of people renting and leasing that cannot switch out a wood stove, you know, that doesn't take care of the fact of what are they going to replace it with? Like, are you going to, you know, give them a boiler? Are you going to install a heat pump? Like, you know, just these conversations of, you know, and you look at it, you know, nationwide, white people hold the majority of the wealth, meaning that they're coming into this conversation with, yes, they might not be, you know, they might not be rich and they might not even, you know, they might still be in what, you know, we are considering poverty, but they have more access to resources because they're not currently being marginalized by the government, meaning they're not even thinking about, you know, things that we as brown and black people have to think about that we don't have access to. So it means that those conversations are coming at a much different level than what the brevity of the situation is. And therefore those solutions, those decisions, those policies are catered to that perspective without really reaching the root of the issue. And that's a major problem, especially when you're talking about climate action planning, when you're talking about um, you know, wanting to lift up some of these areas of discrimination if you don't even understand the brevity of the problem if you don't know where the majority of people don't even have access to and you put a solution up like that it's not really going to solve anything ace do you have some insights you like to share what came up for you as you were listening to Alyssa? I feel like Alyssa did a good job, like it's describing like the entire problem. There's a lot of racism, like there's a lot of white supremacist history in, you know, conversationalism and green spaces, like, and, you know, just being a person who has gone through so many different avenues of approach and trying to break into the industry, like there's racism faced on all fronts. And that's, I think, one of the most discouraging things, like there's going to be racism when you're in a garden, like it doesn't really matter where it is because it's a societal issue, you know? So it's, um, and you know, like even working in like the hiking industry or even outdoor recreation, like people have the assumption that you're just not physically active as a black or brown or any other color person, you know? Like, so people just assume that because they already understand that it is a, a very exclusive industry and different kind of companies and they cater to a certain class and lifestyle and privilege and they you know tend to invite their friends and family who just don't happen to be black or brown people um so it's like it's a closed off kind of entire structure with different branches of racism that you're faced as um 
as anyone really interacting with those spaces, like you're just not really welcome all of the time or most of the time. And it's because you're a stranger and you're, you also don't look like the person. And I think that that's like a psychological thing as well, like a, psych a psychological conditioning, especially like to reject, you know, people that don't look like you. And it's not like racism is so far away, especially like with the things that our last president was, you know, supporting. So it's just like, there's a lot of racial tension. We are definitely becoming more progressive and like people are stopped, like not taking shit, but I feel like there still aren't enough people challenging um, situations where black and brown people are seen as the villain and it's just continuing um, the racism that we face in society. There's like an active desensitization too to like our our lives, you know, and like our existences. Like we just really don't matter in a lot of people's spaces. So like, they're not gonna always try to push for us to be represented because it doesn't really affect them. Um, and it's just kind of how a lot of people were raised, especially in sociology, you really learn that a lot of white people don't interact with a lot of black people. So it's just like, when you do go into those spaces, you stick out like a sore thumb, even in, you know, places like Fairbanks, Alaska, like you can be just what, like a regular person, you know, and you do get confronted and like, like I did have someone ask me if I was from Africa once, like, and that's just like a regular thing for people sometimes, you know, like a regular, like thought process when you're existing as a black person or as a brown person, like people have a kind of extremely invasive invasive curiosity if you are in those spaces because they've had they've heard so many stereotypes and so many microaggressions and they automatically reject you or they just are very like they can fetishize you in a way or just like kind of glamorize you in a really unhealthy way um because they're just so interested because you're you're peculiar you know and i think that it can make some people stray away from those industries like i definitely think that the people that are continuing to fighting to fight in those spaces for us to be recognized as cultures of people who were displaced and um, whose cultures have been extremely watered down to and just not misrepresented and not even spoken about really because there are a lot of black and brown cultures that are treated like a monolith, especially like people don't really care to ask you where you're from. Like if you're black and you look black, people don't care to know where your family's from. Like people are gonna assume you're African-American. So it's just like, and if someone sees someone who is brown, they're not going to, they're just going to assume they're Alaska Native, like they're not going to ask questions usually. Um, and I think that that's where there's a, just a huge disconnect because the questions that are being asked to us when we're in these spaces aren't humanizing questions, you know? So I feel like there's just a lot of layers of microaggressions that we face. Um, and it's all due to the history of colonialism you know like there's just it's just a very long battle for people to be recognized and humanized and finally have access to resources and the lot like just equity you know um and because white people do have most of the wealth due to that colonialism and that his you know that history and racism where resources were kept away from black and brown people and stripped away and it just makes sense why there's not as many people in those spaces today and why we're not really welcome because that's what the history has been and it takes it takes people that are extremely integrated in those spaces to make that change like it the outsider can do the work but also it takes inner work as well you know and i do think that there are people making those efforts but i think that it's very slow moving in my honest opinion i don't know if it'll change in my lifetime you know like make a, a huge jump from people being extremely uncomfortable in those spaces but that's something that i definitely want to fight for hearing both of you talking it emerges how indeed um racial and social justice and climate issues of climate and environment are related and i feel like often uh, these are considered or treated as separate things um and um I wonder if you have some examples or ideas to share um, that kind of illustrates how issues of race and social justice are in fact, um, or how, how they're related to climate, for instance, or the environment. Um, I think there's many different campaigns and examples that you can bring. You know, I think, you know, in terms of the nation, there's, you know, a project in, New York City um, that is black and brown led and they are 
trying to get more oysters back into the bays um, because molluscs, I, ca I cannot pronounce that word. So <laughs> the clams and the oysters and the things like that, you know, they filter the water and, you know, that overall improves the quality of, um, the, you know, the water quality, but also the fish and the things that we're taking from those bays. There's um, clean air, uh, there's clean air initiatives across the nation, especially for public school buses and public transit, because um, I mean, school buses are nothing but tin cans of polluted air. And who are we putting in those tin cans? Our kids. And so they're ended up with all sorts of respiratory and mental illnesses because of that. And so really looking at that and here in Alaska, I, you know, I, I think of Stanford Salmon, um, you know, that that was voted down. But, you know, it was one of it was the first campaign that I worked on when I uh, came on to the Alaska Center. And when I heard about the initiative, the first thing that came to mind is how is it not law already? how is it not part of the process that communities have a part of the process you know what i mean and how villages don't already have consultation with the alaska state legislature in terms of like <laughs> in terms of what waterway is going to be designated protected like it, it didn't make sense and so it was like a common sense thing um you know but i also think of art initiatives in murals and um you know looking at so many artists of color throughout our state that are really taking back that conversation and illustrating what it looks like for, um, you know, for black and brown and indigenous people um, to be, you know, the center of, um, you know, of that conversation and that movement. And, you know, I think it's, you know, with those examples, it's really um, exemplifying the fact that pretty much everything is connected. You know, if you have a clean air and, you know, what you put on the land is going to affect underneath it, which is going to affect your water, which is going to then affect the steam, which then is going to affect the air, which is going to affect your body, which is going to affect the food you grow and the jobs you have and the roads that you drive on, like all of it is connected, you know, making sure you have, you know, well-invested public transit. That's part of climate action. Me having implicit, you know, implicit bias training in your organizations, um, that's climate action because, hey, if you do not understand how racism and systematic oppression and the discrimination affects people who are marginalized, then you are not going to understand um, the all the different crises that we have to deal with on top of the climate crises and how they intersect because intersection isn't just, you know, crossing paths, it's crossing and interlocking. You know, so how, you know, how air quality affects, you know, you know, um, black and brown people and how that then impacts healthcare, and then how that then impacts public service and then how that impacts voting access, you know, all of that intersects with one another. So um, I think the hugest mistake that was ever made in the conservation movement was removing that intersection and centering just who they wanted to center because it took out so many valuable parts of the conversation that now impact everybody doesn't matter you know whether you're a person of color or not doesn't matter if you're indigenous or not y'all breathe air y'all drink water <laughs> y'all eat food meaning you're all getting impacted and the sucky part of that is that marginalized people get impacted the most so it's it's really important to you know to recognize those different campaigns not just in the nation but you know what's happening, you know, right in our own state and in the interior, and what um, what people of color have been doing already. I mean, you look at Calypso Farm. I mean, they have like I think about sixty percent of their staff are people of color, and those are people that are directly feeding our community. You know, with you know good, clean practices with our food, and you know pretty affordable. You know, you look at you know Southside farmers market bringing good quality produce into lower income lower infrastructure uh communities here in fairbanks because the borough won't do it city of fairbanks won't do it they don't care you know as long as they can put their 
their refineries and their businesses and South Cushman and Van Horn, that's all they care about. The world's crumbling, they don't care. Someone's house caved in, don't care. But here are people who are taking that initiative and saying, you know what, we're gonna take care of our own and we're gonna show how we take care of our own. That makes all of the other stuff, <laughs> the climate crisis, um, makes me feel like there's hope that, you know, perhaps I won't see a fully intersectional representative um, plethora of BIPOC leadership within the conservation movement. But you know what? At least I know that I come from a long line of people that have been doing that work already. And I know that there's people in my community that are doing that work now. And what that's teaching folks that are younger than me that are going to be carrying this work after, you know, I'm, you know, 60 and can't be an organizer anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, they're going to know what to do. And I mean, who knows? Maybe, maybe it'll happen. I mean, I didn't think that equal marriage would happen in my lifetime and then two years later <laughs> it got ratified and I'm like okay maybe I should shut my mouth because <laughs> it happens so I hold hope that you know people look at those examples and they see this is how we do it but you know also give credit um, and have those people you know lead those conversations um, and those movements instead of just taking our work and saying it, it was theirs and then not doing it right which happens a lot You've mentioned uh, grassroots organization and their work and the relevance of um, these kind of projects. It makes me think about in the kind of wider spectrum of the political system, if the lack of a influential um, conservation party is an issue or like, how, how do you uh, see that? How I see the lack of representation the lack of an influential conservation party uh, in the bigger political arena. Because you talked about grassroots organization and the relevance of that and how tangible is the work and the, and the good work. And I wonder, on the other side, what about a conservation party on a larger scale? What's the role and, and the relevance of that? And if the lack of one is an issue? Does there feel like any good choice when you're voting? Um, you know, like I feel like Elise is honestly more versed on the political sides of things than I am. Like I would say that that is not my expertise. But I mean, like, what do you notice? You know, because you still vote. Um, yeah, of course. But um, like I, I feel like I'm not as wrapped into like I'm honestly like in terms of like I do more like I would say that I do more community work and I do pay attention to the things that I'm voting towards but I don't get as like I try to stay a little bit more detached from it emotionally just because it is a very like it's a very sensitive conversation a lot of the time you know and um just like especially with things concerning like the pipeline and just like with um animals and just like people losing their land and like the way that things are being like just kind of stolen away from people who should be and other people are making the riches off that of course you know and like making detrimental like detrimental dan danger to the environment to extract these resources like things like fracking and i just feel like it can be like really painful to discuss especially with and i feel like climate change as a whole like the climate crisis like just things like the um the amount of snow that we've gotten this winter can be sensitive because people like and you know the conversation of wealth and not having adequate resources and things like dry cabins you know who more like poor people live in um and roofs cave in and things like that and flooding like how those resources aren't really available is the most like concerning thing for me and like how those gaps are going to really be filled I feel like like there's a huge like housing crisis and then homeless people in Alaska especially like being exposed to the air quality and exposed to the cold especially too and the way that some in some places the ice is actually just melting enough for people to fall in and they're losing their homes and like there is I feel like it's it's hard for me to even tune in to like, okay, this is the, there's so much happening at all times that it's like, you just have to keep going. Like, okay, you vote yes on the thing, let's save the planet. Don't let 
the elites fuck everything up but then you're like okay but this is happening in this area like just there was a volcano that just went off you know and i believe saint vincent and the ash is affecting barbados and um that was a dormant volcano for a little bit of time so the people were not prepared um and then conversations like people that weren't being vaccinated aren't being rescued so it's just like in that sometimes is you know a lack of access to resources and able to get the vaccination and healthcare and things like that you know in certain areas so I feel like it's just such a large conversation for me and such an emotional conversation because people are being impacted now and it's not really something that we can wait about like we go through these processes where okay we have to vote and do things like that where but it takes so much longer and people are being impacted every single day you know every second of the year this is getting worse and heat waves and snow in the lower 48 and people are just now figuring out how to live like how you know a lot of alaskans have been living people have had to do that as an emergency you know procedure in the lower 48 to prevent things like their roofs caving in because they're getting snow in texas like and so much snow that they don't even understand what's going on it's just moving so constantly and the effects of everything that has been happening it's so detrimental today that I try to stay a little bit aloof when it comes to keeping up with anything that with a particular thing, because the picture is the picture in front of me is so immediate in terms of Alaska, because we're going to feel climate effects very quickly because we're in the Arctic and we have methane gas, you know, in our permafrost. And there's a lot of things that are going to be affected, like a lot of a lot of different discussions like bacteria being released because of um, the ice melting and how COVID, like how COVID even moves through the winter versus the summer and like, and how those things impact poor people not having access to showers and things like that. Like, I feel like there's just such a, like everything has to be from an emergency planning perspective now. Like we really, like the processes that we're taking are again, moving a little bit too slow because people are alive and dying now and today because of what's going on and not having access to certain resources that they would if there wasn't just such a hold on certain things like oil and people are getting adequate resources for living in those places where they're taking resources from. Yeah, and to piggyback off of that, I mean, what elected leader in our leadership is talking about any of those things? Do they really know the brevity of the situation? And, um, you know, when I hear a lot of our elected leaders talk, they, I don't know if it's because they don't want to have the sort of alarmist um, perspective, they don't want to scare people, or if they truly do not understand the brevity of the situation. But if our elected leaders aren't even coming from communities that are being impacted in this way, then what truly is being represented in the conservation movement? And so I would, you know, say to that question, um, the lack of representation absolutely is, um, it's in tangent with the lack of um, representation and leadership in conservation spaces. And it feeds upon, you know, again, our lives and our livelihoods, you know, because we are not being represented in these spaces, you know, these policies that we are making um, or in that elected leaders who do understand the brevity of the situation are making are being debated, are being thrown out of committees, are, um, or being, you know, dwindled down because, oh, we, well, that's spending too much money or giving too much money to one organization or one agency or one part of government. Um, and then that costs us our lives, it costs us our well being. Um, so it's, you know, just like conservation work and um, environmental justice work and everything else, it's all connected. I think it's more than just getting, you know, um, people of color, like more people of color in places of leadership. I think it's more about bringing, decentralizing the system in itself. You know, it's not so much of like, let's have a black governor and, um, you know, let's have in, you know, like an indigenous speaker of the house, like that would be amazing. And I would love to see that. Um, but it's also about what are we, how are we connecting our constituents into that process? How do communities have a say? Because even if you have, you know, a representative, you know, elected um, or electorate, 
that doesn't necessarily mean that the solutions coming out of the legislature or the borough assembly or the city council are actually going to hit where it needs to. So, and to me, that's really where um, the community comes into play when we get to have input on those policies, when we get to say, no, this is an emergency, like, you know, like what happened um, with Tulsa, like completely and totally unacceptable. And what did our governor do? Oh, we were, we knew and we work in it. No, you didn't. Like we had to grind you on Facebook in order to get a response. You know, it's things like that, you know, and had, you know, there actually have been resources, you know, in that village where it wasn't just one laundromat that everybody was depending on clean water because we can seem to put a pipeline in every single part of Alaska, but we can't seem to put, you know, water irrigation <laughs> in half of the state because it's Alaska, I think speaks volumes. It speaks volumes to the priorities that our electeds have. It speaks volumes to the people who are leading these political parties and these movements uh, because they're not in connection with communities that are impacted in such a way. So it's, it's again, another downer, <laughs> but I mean, that that's sort of the lay of the land that we're at and why a lot of, um, especially young uh, community organizers and folks that work in this movement are being called passionate. We're not passionate. We are doing this to survive. This is, you know, a life and death situation and this is life and death work and sure I may be passionate I may be yelling at an elected leader but it's because someone else is literally dying because it's 40 below and there is no place for them to get warm and while my governor and my borough assembly mayor and my city mayor sit home with heat and all the clothes in the world and a shower I have to worry about my friends freezing on the road um, I have to worry about my friend's house that is now sinking halfway into the ground because of permafrost met. I have to find space in my house because my other friends, um, you know, their properties are being burned by forest fire and our fire departments cannot handle how intense they are. It really does speak volumes. And, you know, when communities truly have input in the process, then we can finally get solutions that actually help us prepare and you know help us alleviate um a lot of the detriment that folks are already having to deal with and will continue to deal with in your experiences and community organizing work do you connect with a lot of people who essentially say you know nobody wants to listen to me or it it, it won't make a difference absolutely all the time um, and it's exactly what I said, you know, people are trying to survive and not just in a climate crisis, but just like having to have two or three jobs, having kids, going to school, people do not have time to think about, is my voter registration updated? Am I thinking about, you know, what this ordinance, you know, 2023 or whatever is going to say and how that impacts me? No, because the system, you know, allows for us to work, 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 sleep, and then work, 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 work. We don't have that. It doesn't allot a lot of people that time. And, you know, when you're talking about communities marginalized, especially, we're already having to deal with the impacts. My dog is sneezing. <laughs> she, she just had some teeth extracted, so she's all sorts of, yeah, if you hear that in the background, that's what it is. Um, <laughs> but um, we're already having to deal with the detriments of racism, homophobia, transphobia, uh, sexism, things of this, you know, systemic oppression and discrimination. It makes it even harder for people to actually get engaged, to have time, to feel like they have to have time. Um, and it's an interesting dichotomy because you don't have time, you're trying to survive. And yet, if you don't pay attention, you can lose your rights like that. You know, and we are seeing this nationwide, especially with the trans and intersex community. We're seeing this, you know, with um, we're seeing this, you know, especially in the COVID pandemic when it comes to healthcare access and the quality of care um, that Black and Brown and Indigenous people are getting or not getting because you know that is exacerbated by the pandemic, and so people, we are already sort of knowing this history of exclusion and conservation movements. When you do not see anybody out there that looks like you that's hiking and gardening 
and um, you know, doing tours, when you don't, you know, see a lot of people that look like you in public works and zoning or on your municipal governments or on your uh, state governments, what's the point? You know, a lot of people, a lot of people just don't want to engage and I don't blame them. I don't blame them. You know, there's a really, there's a really good saying that I'm going to butcher, but you know, the Democrats get in, the hood's still the same. The Republicans, you know, get in, the hood's still the same, you know, and that's really speaking to the reach that our electeds have in our communities that are being impacted the most, you know, regardless of who gets in, the hood stays the same. And I wouldn't say that Fairbanks really has a hood, but I mean, it, it really does, it really does speak to, you know, the, the level of engagement that people have with our government and that the government has with its people. And in a lot of areas, it's really missing. It's very, um, it's very dismal. And so that's kind of my job as a community organizer is to, you know, speak to those people who may feel that because I felt that way when I was growing up, but I, I then recognized how that it is important and that, you know, if I have the voice to make change, then I'm going to do everything in my power to, you know, sort of bring that system back down to a communal level and really show people that, yes, like, yes, it, it is not representative. And yes, you are struggling, but you know what? No, none of this is going to get done unless we do it. And it's not going to get done right unless we show them how. So let's, you know, muster all we can and let's take care of ourselves. Let's show people how to take care of ourselves and each other and let's get it done. So we can finally get on with living and not just surviving, you know, really thriving and not just surviving. And I really resonate with the point that Alyssa made that um, like government officials just aren't connected with the community. Like they just don't spend time in their communities as well. Um, and I think that that might be a bigger reason why they just don't have empathy we're just not like you have empathy with people that you view as you know people that you're reliant upon people that you give to people that you see every day um and because they're not in their communities talking to the people interacting with the people and the people don't know them they don't trust them they're unfamiliar you're just seeing a bunch of random people and you know growing up and you're if you're not versed in politics you're you've always just been seeing a bunch of white men um and white women like honestly and like you just like you don't know what's going on half of the time because they're just all controlling your life and you don't really have you feel like you don't have much of a say in it and you know and when you do go through if you do ever go you know vote sometimes you end up with officials that don't really have your best interest in mind despite popular vote and that can really discourage you as well especially if that was your first time voting and then you know someone that is extremely against everything that you represent and is clearly like not someone who completely will call off white supremacists and deny white supremacists directly and avoids the topic you know and that's a clear history in America it can bring up maybe even PTSD for some people, like my life is about to go to hell. Like it just things like abortion bans, like a lot of people, you know, having that automatic fear and like people were genuinely scared when abortion bans passed. Like people were genuinely scared when Trump got elected, you know, like scared for their futures and their families. And like also just the way that hiring officials that don't represent marginalized people and don't care about marginalized people obviously impacts the local community and white supremacists that are already live in your neighborhoods that you might not know about you know it empowers those people when they do see those people in charge and understanding that they still have the upper hand which just makes those every single thing that we already face more frustrating and harder you know like because it really depends on the political climate how people act when you think about it like when political climate changes and depending on who is in office people do different kinds of crimes like dur during certain time periods like there's just a lot of intersection and it's all being connected um and it just makes people fear because for their lives you know just as 
the same as any anti-Asian rhetoric has been causing mass shootings, you know, across like in different states, there's just a lot and people are being attacked every day. And this happens, it's it's not like this is new. This is a historical pattern of the way that we treat people and the way that we basically handle people that are widely broadcasted as a threat to quote unquote America, not considering that all of these people in this country are American as well. And you can't just beat someone up because they're a different color than you. Like if we're all American citizens, like we're, and even if we're immigrants allowed on American soil, like there's not a justification for the behavior, but because someone who is so proud and cocky to be a white supremacist or to not even deny white supremacist rhetoric can say, this is directly related to China or this is directly related to, and then creating targets for those people in their daily lives. And now they can't go to the grocery store. They can't go garden. They can't go hiking because now they're entering those spaces that are already hard to enter and already like having those fears and anxieties of being mistreated. And now the political climate basically gives the thumbs up for them to be attacked. So it's just like a revolving door of which demographics going to get treated worse in the conservation movement or outside and in life. And, you know, life affects conservation innately, like resources are conservation, like conservation is all of our livelihoods. Like it's not something that's separate and people, you know, will try to make it seem like, oh, these are, these are tree huggers, but it's just like, no, like these are people that care about the water that you're drinking. Like Alyssa said, like every single thing that's going into your bodies, the produce that's the, where it's being handled, like the quality of the um, the chickens that you're like, if it's factory farming or not. And like, if there are water sources by those factory farms that are being affected by animal feces and giving people cancer and creating so many different health problems for the poor people around them. Like it's all a domino effect and it can't be separated at any point. And because we are all living beings, we all deserve to have lives where we're not fighting for our lives every single day and fighting to be just respected in a regular space like a grocery store um because no one wants to feel like they can't go outside and that's what the political climate is creating now like that people just can't go outside and if you do you should be scared if you're not a white person honestly and sometimes you should be scared if you're a white person too because Sometimes people aren't even looking for a specific target. They're just looking to impact the community, you know, and they have a target in mind, but whatever is going on, they're just doing whatever makes them happy in terms, in the names of maintaining the quote unquote Nordic race and structure that was promised to them, you know? So it's really about breaking down white supremacy and making sure that we take a firm stance against it and we're not lukewarm or we're not in the middle about when people are terrorists, when certain acts are terrorism, when things are racism, because you can't separate racism from a lot of things. Like people can say that that is an excuse, but it genuinely isn't. It's a genuine way that people have been conditioned to treat and see certain demographics. Yeah, and I think to clarify for <laughs> the listeners, you know, especially, you know, when we say, when we talk about white supremacy, I think a lot of people like to think about, you know, the KKK and, you know, what does that have to do with conservation? But that's not the case. You know, white supremacy is a culture and it's a culture that we all grew up into, whether you're white or not. And, you know, it is what, you know, it's what's told, you know, the founders of, you know, of the conservation movement. It's what told John Mayer, or not John Mayer, um, how you pronounce this, you know what you know, the father of conservation, everybody knows who I'm talking about. <laughs> but it's what, you know, told them, you know, that this is that, you know, the wilderness is a wild, untouched, pristine place that, you know, we as the elite, you know, educated people who care, the only people who care about the environment and not the people who, you know, have been living there for thousands and thousands and thousands of years and kind of showed them how to survive in those places in the first place. No, we are the true protectors. You know, it's, it's who told, you know, it's what created veganism as we know it today. It has always been, you know, people in power looking at, you know, the history and the work 
that um, black and brown and indigenous people have done, taken it, spun it and marketed to their needs, their wants, their customs, which was directly detrimental to what they were trying to protect. And so that is really the connection there that, you know, all of us are trying to make when we talk about, you know, white centrism and normalization in the conservation movement. It's like, look, this is a culture that has literally, you know, embedded itself in every single faction of our work to who is leading our organizations, to what our solutions are, to what is determined as a resource and how that is to be managed and allocated. Um, and so that's why all of these things are important to recognize because, you know, what has been happening now is, oh, let's save the trees. Oh, we need to protect, you know, public parks. It's like, yes, we need to save the trees and protect, you know, public parks, but why? And who gets to do that? And uh, where those designations come from, where that authority comes from, and who is involved in those decisions? And if we don't understand and know the history of white supremacy in conservation, we're never going to get to a solution. We're going to have exactly what we have now, which is a very watered down conservation movement where we focus a lot on like animals and plants. And we need to make sure our banks are, you know, clear, but it's like, okay, but if you don't know why, and you don't know how to do that, you're just going to be hurting the environment for the people that already live here. That's exactly what's happening in Fairbanks. That's exactly what's happening in Alaska. It's happening everywhere. So that's why we go on and on and on about, you know, white supremacy. Cause I'm sure that there's somebody listening and I'm like, I don't understand the connection, but there's a connection for you like how like for example you want to restore a um you want to restore a river and you want it to be pristine you know that was a common argument that you know is thrown out against conservation it's like we want to clean up the rivers and you know we want to make it pristine no we don't we want to make it drinkable and palatable right you know fish don't necessarily need to be don't need a river that's you know, completely alkaline, you might actually kill that species and you might actually kill everything else that eats the fish that depends on the water quality that is there in the river right now, you know? But if you aren't indigenous to these lands, if you don't know about those species and how, you know, or, you know, for example, you know, a lot of people will get, you know, the mosquito spray for their lawns because like, who, who needs mosquitoes? Not really a lot of people, but who eats mosquitoes, birds, insects, you know, you know, small animal and creature things. You start pumping these mosquitoes with chemicals, these other, you know, animals are gonna be eating their dead bodies, which means they're gonna get poisoned, which means other animals that eat those smaller animals that we also eat are getting poisoned, which means we're getting poisoned. It's affecting bees and then, you know, bee colonies are literally collapsing, which means no pollinators, no honey, which means we're pretty much screwed. <laughs> right you think about all the forest fires like our state was literally on fire the entire state was literally on fire last year all of that flame retardant that you know has so many toxins that's going directly not just into all of our berries and our wild plants which people who live out in the bush people you know people who hunt for subsistence that's animals eating those blueberries that's us eating those blueberries filled with fire retardant also meaning our aquifers fire retardant which means water supply poison so you know and who decided all of those things that were going to happen because we're trying to save the environment like conservationalists because they didn't really look at how that thing was going to affect everything and they didn't listen to the people that actually lived there so that is why we talk about these things and we bring it up because it's full circle and it means that it affects everything and it's so annoying so annoying <laughs> Does your work in a way feel like reclaiming? Oh, absolutely. I mean, a lot of it is reclamation, but a lot of it is also remembering, you know, understanding that all of us are indigenous to some place in this world. And the part about, you know, white supremacy that is really painful, especially for people, you know, you know, non-people of color, is that there are lessons and teachings and histories and ways of being that white people don't even have anymore because 
everything was taken away from us. And we have to do so much work to remember what that was so we can inform how we live now and in the future. Um, so it, it, it's both reclaiming and carving out that space for ourselves, regardless of what our identities are, but it's also remembering where we come from because, you know, recognizing that this is this work is not new. You know, we had a way, we had ways of life that were um, in cohesion with the beings and the land around us. Remembering that and applying those lessons to how we can repair and restore and recontinue that history that makes sense in the world today. Cause I'm not saying let's get rid of computers and let's go back to horse and buggies. Cause I don't like riding on a horse like that. And I like hot running water. Okay. Like, <laughs> and I like toilets. So we no, we ain't going back to them days, but remembering, oh, maybe the best, you know, maybe the best option to repair, you know, our riverbanks isn't just planting a whole bunch of trees and making the city look pretty. Maybe it's looking at the different root systems that were around that area. Maybe it's talking to our elders that remember what that was like, because they're the ones that were making those trails and understanding, you know, those root systems and can tell you, oh, you don't need to plant a tree there. You need to plant a bush. And that's the bush over there. Just plant over there. And in about five years, it'll take a you know, it'll take this bank and you'll be good. You know, so I would say it's in tandem and it's work that we all have to do. And, you know, of course, I think a lot of people get stuck on the whole white, white, white supremacy, white, 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 you know, but it, it's really not. It's work that we all have to do, you know, because we all come from somewhere and we all got shoved into this one area. And so what does it mean to, to remember that? Um, and, coexist not just with each other again because we did um but coexist with the land and coexist with the animals again what does that mean for us now and what does that mean for us down the line and all the after us that will continue to happen what are we teaching them and what are they going to teach their little ones right i think that was a really good point that you made that through white supremacy, white people have lost their culture as well. Yeah, I think that was just an excellent point. I don't think a lot of people really think about that. And that's the first time I've actually ever heard someone say that before, you know, that everyone is being like, of course, everyone's being impacted. But I don't think a lot of people consider that they've lost their own culture. And it's been like things have been rewritten for them. And now they are acting like a puppet in a bigger picture that is a conflict that has really nothing to do with them. Because they, you know, they might be benefiting in some ways, but they're not living with the elites truly, you know, like they're still, you know, getting stuck in the system of having to go to the grocery store for their groceries. They don't have their own gardens. They don't have their own like water taps, you know, and they're still as affected as everyone else is, but they're acting like a, you know, a minion for this bigger picture of harm and hatred that really doesn't benefit anyone because when we're fighting, you know, government officials are fleeing states during natural disasters and going on vacation, you know? And guess who's left in the, in the community like us? Like, racist or not you're still going to be you know fending for your life in a pandemic or in anything serious because if you don't have that access to wealth and resources you're just as like you're sitting duck just like everybody else truly um because at the end of the day it's truly about access to water and clean air and food and you know if we lose those things as a community in any community who do you have to rely on if there's racial tension who do you have to rely on if there is conflict that you don't even understand that you just kind of jumped into and now you don't have a neighbor to look at or you can't you know and there's people in your community that have skills and talents and indigenous people that know the land that you you're not going to interact with because you have some kind of outlook that you shouldn't or that you're believing some stereotype when truly they could teach you how to survive off of the land in terms of an emergency situation and teach you what is edible and you know like what paths to take so it's just like we just all look really silly at the end of the day, you know, like we all put on our clown noses at the end of the day, you know, um, if you're going to the Kroger to shop or Fred Meyer, you're not like, you're not, you're not really that wealthy, like truly, because you're still relying on 
the grocery store. Um, and until you, you're not, you don't have to rely on those specific resources, you don't truly have sustainability in your life. And, you know, there's a different kind of wealth that comes from being able to grow your own food and having access to a community that is, you know, one person has chickens and another person has milk and they're exchanging instead of using money to control everything. And that's true riches because in an emergency situation, you still have eggs and milk. Like you don't have to go to the grocery store. So that is really like, I feel like my main focus, and I feel like a lot of people have lost that true sense of indigenous life of being sustainable within your own means and being able to interact with the person and, and to be able to feel safe around in your community and with the people around you. Because if you don't feel comfortable talking to your neighbor because they're they're white or black or indigenous, like indigenous, like you, what are you gonna do if a volcano erupts? Like, are you gonna figure out if your neighbor is okay? Or are you just gonna leave them out to dry? Like, what are you gonna do in an emergency situation? Um, how are you gonna survive? And I feel like that's the bigger question that a lot of people need to ask themselves because really it comes down to, we don't own the water. If something happens to the water quality, people are gonna be fighting in, I mean, there's already talk about water, water being the next quote unquote war because they polluted it so bad that they know that we're going to have to fight for it. And they, that's why they, you know, purchased it up and they're starting to sell it back to the public instead of giving us access to these resources. Like, so it's just like, everyone should be scared for themselves and their children and their health and their life expectancy, because we're really not here to die early, but things like racial tension and things like just not caring about the people that live around you, not speaking to them, being afraid of them, is going to kill us earlier in in you know the long term picture. So what's the point of even extending families if we're not even giving our kids that access to having people around them? We're getting close to the end of this togetherings episode on representation and the conservation movement. The first thing I want to do is is thank our guests, Ace Palmer and Alyssa Quinton, for engaging in this conversation. Appreciate the chance to listen, to share this with a wider audience as well. We'd like to close by asking each of you, if you would, to share a question to leave listeners with. Um, I, I suppose my question to the listeners <laughs> would be in such a, it's such a complex time and conversation and, and, and topic is what do you what do you feel your place is in this in this movement and your community is and what do you want it to be um, and who's in who's in your support network to help you reach that because everybody has a role in this movement whether you're loud you know, community organizer like me or you're cool revolution ante that we all come to after a hard testimony and we eat, you know, and we decompress. What do you want that role to be for you? And who are the people that are going to help you do it? Thank you, Alyssa. Ace, what are you thinking about? I think that for, I really liked your question, by the way, Alyssa, that was like, that gave me a lot to think about as well. So I appreciate that you gave us too. Um, but you know, I would say in terms of the way that life is looking now, you know, we've been dealing with, you know, this pandemic for over a year, who is like, like, what does your emergency contact list look like? And do you have a person that has chickens on there? Like, is your emergency contact list sustainable in terms of we do have a lot of community, you know, members that have chickens and have goats and have, and how can you become, you know, someone that has a substantial resource or something to contribute to their community in an emergency time period? Because I think that that's something that we, you know, we're in right now and we need to keep preparing for, for the future and getting better at so that we don't have to get blindsided, um, and can study, you know, the things that are happening around us together and make sure that people don't have to, you know, have situations where they're spiraling or, you know, going through serious, you know, mental states 
and depressions because they feel like there aren't resources um, and they don't have access to resources. Like how can we close those gaps in emergency time periods um, and make sure that we can handle emergencies better in the future? Just how do we become more structured and indigenous and sustainable in our emergency practices and planning? And what can you contribute to someone else's emergency plan? Well, thanks, Alyssa and Hayes. Um, these are were really beautiful thoughts and questions to close with. Uh, it was a pleasure getting to spend this hour with you. So with that said, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Like, I'm, I'm happy that I could be here. And honestly, like, as a little sidebar, Alyssa's like the reason why I started to vote. Like, seriously, like, and that's like a part of the You're bigger not, conversation. What really? You really I'm are. I'm the like, reason. <laughs> yeah, because I was kind of not like, I was kind of like one of those people that were really, that was really discouraged, you know, and like just kind of not feeling like also had like a fear of like, crime happening at the voting polls you know like things mm -hmm. like just like all those things always came into my head and I was just like you know really wrapped in like that fear of like my voice doesn't matter until I like you know met someone that's strongly into voting and encourages it and someone that looks like me with literally like the same cultural background and I was like okay like this can feel like a safer space and that's what it's going to take is like that to that relationship and you brought me into this space so i appreciate you oh damn fran ah. <laughs> this episode was funded by why it matters civic and electoral participation initiative administered by the federation of state humanities councils and funded by the andrew w mellon foundation